Hi there, and welcome to the Wayback Music Machine podcast, the show that takes a lighthearted look at the week that was in rock and roll history. I'm Tony Stewart. I'm Aaron Badgley. And what a week it was. We're going to be talking a little James Brown today. Who else are we going to be discussing? Well, a favorite of your yours and mine, a guy named Billy Preston. Um, and one of, I guess a favorite you and me too is Bob Dylan. So we've got a good, good uh, segment coming up. Oh, and you know what? We're also doing a little story about uh, one of the most important events in rock and roll history. So it's going to be a great show. Stick around. Well, to kick things off today, we are at July the 6th, 1963, for a monumental event for black music in America, because this was a a big crossover hit. This, of course, is James Brown's iconic album, Live at the Apollo Theater, and this went all the way to number two on the U.S. album charts. What an amazing album. I was just listening to it actually earlier today. Well, I feel good about this, don't I? <laughs> it was just the I feel good. You know, it is an amazing album, and, and it, it was an album that has been in my family, in my life. My older brother, my eldest brother, rest in peace, had the album, and he used to play it all the time. And what I liked about it, and this is going to sound funny, is that it's, it's a, not a long album. No, it only clocks in at about half an hour, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's great. I mean, what a half hour it is. But, you know, I, I get... I'm an old guy, I guess, but these days with CDs, some, sometimes they're like 80 minutes. And it's a bit long, but this album, man, it's just from beginning to end cooks, you know? Well, and you, the other thing I found when you listen to it is you do feel like, compared to some live albums that look like they've been overly produced after the fact, yeah, this album, you feel like you're right there, don't you? Well, it's almost like the microphone's planted right in the audience. Yeah, you yeah. Know? There's so much great audience reaction in there. And yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, now, this is an album that you know has gone down in history as one of the greatest live albums of all time. You know, I can think of a, a few live albums that can compete with it, or you know, whatever. But this is an album that almost didn't get made, right, Tony? Yeah, it almost didn't. James Brown had a tough time uh, convincing King Records, which was his label. Uh, he had a tough time getting them to release it. They were thinking that, you know, why put out a live album if you're not going to have any new songs on it? But he stuck to his guns. He obviously thought otherwise. And so he f- ended up financing it himself. And uh, what a decision. It spent, what, 66 weeks on the uh, album chart. That's incredible. And it made number two, as you said. And it's it's an album that has stayed in print since 1963. It's never been out of print. And it's it's... You know, it's just, um, it's it's an artist knowing what's right. And he, this guy knew. I, I, and I've seen James. I saw James Brown at the old Ontario Place Forum when the concerts used to be free if you got into Ontario Place or the CNE. And, uh, I mean, even at that time, that was mid-80s. He was still putting on a hell of a show, you know? Well, for sure. James Brown was, uh, you know, sex appeal on a stick, right? I mean, he was unbelievable. And, and, they, and, they, and they bring the cape out and calm them down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you can hear that in the crowd reaction. It's a, a fantastic set. And I love even the little uh, instrumental interludes that are on the album, right? Like there'll be a track that is a 12-second uh, instrumental interlude. It's, it's just a, a brilliant set. Now, you, you know that he used to sue or 
not sue is the wrong word. He would financially punish his members of the band if they made a mistake. Okay. I heard that he was strict like that. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. That if you if you made a mistake, he would he would fine you. That's the word fine. He fined you. Yeah, he was a, a taskmaster for sure. And but tight band. Listen to the results. That band is is grooving. Oh yeah, and it's interesting. I, and I put this note in the notes because I thought it was I didn't I didn't know this, but King Records, who didn't want to release the album, and they were originally they just specialized in country music. And their slogan uh, in the '40s was, "If it's a king, it's a hillbilly, and if it's a hillbilly, it's a king." And they had Queen Records, which they called the Race Records, which were the black artists. Now they were both owned by a guy named Sid Nathan, and eventually he in 1943 he. Um, or in the 50s, he just kind of folded Queen into King Records. But what an interesting story about a label that started off with hillbilly music, mm-hmm. transforming itself to being a label that, in the 60s anyways, was primarily you know R&B, black music, right? Well, that's right. And this really was James Brown's uh, coming out party. He had been around for a while, but he didn't have the same opportunities, you know, let's say that a guy like Elvis Presley did for, at first, where Elvis, being white... You know, gets on the Ed Sullivan show, gets on Steve Allen, gets on Milton Berle. For uh, a guy like James Brown, it was a whole lot of work behind the scenes. And in fact, didn't they nickname him the hardest working guy in the music business, right? Yeah. Well, and, and you know, when you look at his, uh, you know, the amount of records he put out. So when he wasn't touring, he was recording. And when he wasn't recording, he was touring. And he, he um, like Chuck Berry, very similar work ethic. I mean, the, the amount that these guys put out in, in, I guess a relatively short time because by the seventies, well, I guess the eighties, James Brown's, you know, star appeal had, had, had kind of waned and he wasn't recording as often as he probably liked, or he was always a touring guy though. He toured up to almost his death, I think. Oh, and don't forget. He also did uh, a song for Rocky four. Do you remember that living in America? <laughs> That's such a great song. It is a fantastic song. It's really, I, I love, it. it's like, it's, there's certain songs we have that put a smile on my face. That's one that always does. It's just, it was, because you didn't know if he was being slightly critical of the U.S., you know? Exactly. <laughs> that whole scene in the movie is so over the top, you know? Oh, it's so brilliant. <laughs> and you're a Rocky guy, right? Oh, yeah. I could talk for the next hour about Rocky. Oh my gosh, I love Rocky. It's in my DNA. I'm Italian, right? So, I have a question for you. Do you have a favorite Rocky song? Because almost every Rocky film has a song that became a hit. Do you have a favorite? Well, the theme song. Yeah, yeah. The theme song, I think, is my favorite because it's used strategically in all the movies, right? Like, if, if you watch, there's a certain point when you'll hear the chime, the big, uh, tubular bells there'll be a chime and then the and then a little snippet of the theme song for me that gets me every time like i have the adrenaline's going and i'm like i'm on my feet and, um but there are uh there are a lot of them uh that I, i'm just trying to think here uh, the one survivor by, that was a good one survivor yeah, um eye of the tiger is fantastic that's a good workout song yeah what about you do you have a favorite rocky song I, I would be a tie. I love the theme. Like, I, I, you know, for me, the theme is him running up the stairs in Philadelphia, right? And and running up and down the stairs and, and then kind of, you know, waving his arms. It, it's pretty an iconic scene, right? And, um, but I like I like living in America. I remember, I remember that came out and it was just so over the top musically. 
you know, like it, <laughs> you'd be driving in the car and there was no mistaking when it came on the radio. It was like, oh, mackerel, you know. Yeah, that's a great But that song. was James Brown, right? He was a bit over the top to begin with, so. No, exactly. Now, you know, this uh, Live at the Apollo, uh, the historical significance of it as well, right? It is, um, it was a massive crossover success. It was still difficult, even in 1962, 1963, sometimes for black artists to get uh, white radio play. But this was a massive, massive crossover hit. And in fact, because it was so short, DJs would quite often, you know, they'd spin side one, put a commercial break in, and then they'd spin side two. It was very convenient. Now, you've, you, I walked by the Apollo. I've never been in the Apollo. You were actually in the Apollo. I was in the Apollo, and I got to stand on stage, too. It's a... Wow, it, you, it oozes history. Yeah, I, I, my daughter had tickets to see the psychedelic furs there, but they canceled twice, so she never got into the. Um, but I've never been inside. I've heard that you can just feel it off the the floor, you know, the the boards on the. And you were actually on the stage too. On the you? stage, yeah, I got to stand on the stage. And Look at uh, you, oh, telling jokes. Gosh. I got to tell a joke up on the stage. Yeah, it was pretty fun. <laughs> there was no audience there except for the kids uh, on in the high school band because it was a well, band tour. And the ghosts. I'm sure there's some ghosts hanging out there. Yeah, and I'm sure I told, I can't even remember what joke I told, but uh, it was a dad joke, you know, one of those. So now what did you uh, put for charts for this week? Well, uh, although he was number one on the Billboard album charts, and uh, I just thought I'd go over the USA R&B charts from Billboard magazine that same day or same week. And because it was, it's a really, it's an interesting hodgepodge. and, And it speaks to what we had spoken about before about, you know, on the R and B and the on the on those charts, it was it was a mixture of white and black, and 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 it's certainly in the top five. Number five, I love Solomon Burke. Um, if you need me, number four, Marvin Gaye, Pride and Joy, classic, right? Mm-hmm. Number three, Theolo Kilgore. Again, these names. I just I want a T shirt. Um, the love of my man. This surprised me at number two. I don't know what, if it surprises you, but Leslie Gore, It's My Party. It does surprise me, and, and I think maybe it surprises me because I thought that song came out before 63. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> me too. And by the way, on the Spotify playlist, I just had to put on Brian Ferry's cover version of the song because okay. it's so, 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 it'll put a smile on your face. His, his vocalizations at certain parts are very funny. And number one, a, a singer who, Tony, I don't know why she has disappeared over time, but I, I have a lot of her music on CDs. And name uh, Barbara Lewis and a song called Hello Stranger. I really like Barbara Lewis, and she doesn't seem to get the, I don't know, the, the notoriety anymore. Yeah, that happens every once in a while. Eh? Yeah, it sure does. Yeah, yeah. Sad, but she's great. So that's the top five R&B charts on uh, well, that day in 1963, on July 6th, 1963. And, you know, before we cut to break here, Aaron, I just want to remind people that every single episode uh, you put together, uh, the list of tunes that we're listening to on the 8-track player in the Wayback Music Machine van, and you can check out those tunes on the Spotify playlist. And we always put a link to that in our social media posts, but we've also got a link to that playlist in the show notes. So whatever podcast player you're using to listen to this, if you'd like some tunes to listen to afterwards just click on that link it's better than an eight-track player tony because it doesn't click at any point or fade songs in and out in us unnecessarily yeah that's true so what do you say we cut to break and we'll be right back
So now we're going 10 years almost to the day where another artist uh, makes number one. Now, not James Brown made number two, but Billy Preston hits the number one spot on the singles charts in the U.S. with a, a song that, in my opinion, defines the term feel good. I mean, if you can put on Will It Go Around in Circles and not have a smile by the end of it or be tapping your foot or your hand, brother, you ain't got a pulse. Well, but, that's um, right. You're you're a robot, obviously, because I'm smiling <laughs> even, even as I think about that song. <laughs> I love Billy Preston. We've talked about our mutual love of this man. And, oh, and yeah. um, you know, the fact he started off as a child prodigy, played with Ray Charles and 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 really became known because of the Beatles um, on the Get Back single. And the only artist to receive credit on a Beatle record, such as on the Get Back single, it says the Beatles with Billy Preston, which is pretty high praise in my opinion. And there was a push, wasn't there, to make him a full-time member of the Beatles, I thought. Yeah, there was. And and I think that uh, that was Harrison pushing that. I mean, Harrison produced his two albums for Apple. That's the way God planned it in Encouraging Words. And you and I are both fans, and I'm, you know, don't want to take any thunder away from you, but you know, the George Harrison tribute concert that was done a year after he passed away, Billy's cover of My Sweet Lord oh. is just is 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 inspirational. It is. It's one of those feel good performances that I, I just like to watch every so often, just just because, you know, I'm sure you have ones like that as well, but it's it's great to watch. Well, I, I, I agree with you, and I think it's fantastic. And it's and his performance in the concert for Bangladesh when he does That's the Way God Planned It, and he comes out yeah. from behind his big keyboards, organs, and he just dances across the stage. Pure magic. I, I saw Billy Preston, Tony, with Ringo Starr on Ringo Starr's first All-Star Tour. Oh, wow. And he did Will It Go Around in Circles, and he did his other number one single, Nothing From Nothing. And um, he was just a showman. He was like James Brown. I mean, these very similar in that they're both showmen. Do you know what I mean? Well, that's right. And another hardworking musician, and uh, but a, such a talent. And like you say, he was a child prodigy and, and uh, got to work with people like Ray Charles. A, a, amazing career. And Oh, Stones, The Beatles. I mean, it's just... And he had only two number ones. Um, Will It Go Around in Circles and um, Nothing From Nothing. But he had top ten singles with You, I'm Born Again, with Sarita, Out of Space, and Space Race. I think he likes space. <laughs> <laughs> now, I love this note that you've got in here, but I'm going to let you talk about that. But just about the uh, going around in circles and, and how everything came full circle, because that, that's really neat. So... Uh, why don't you just tell us about that? About how the song came about? Yeah, yeah. So this was a, a out of a joke Preston made to his song, songwriting partner named Bruce Fisher. So he had a song, he had no melody, which is one of the opening lines. I got a song, it got no melody. I'm going to sing it to my friends. Um, the song, I mean, it's just it was a it was a similar proclamation, such as having a story with no moral and having a dance with no steps and and all that kind of stuff. So it's really kind of that song where. It, from the from the get go, it was to make you feel good, right? I mean, um, now by the way, his co writer Bruce Fisher would go on to have a hit with Joe Cocker with "You Are So Beautiful." So this is a time for really great songwriters in, in Los Angeles and and uh, exciting times, exciting times. But um, pretty pretty cool. And the other the other thing that's cool about this single, Tony, and you know I'm a chart guy. 
It took a long time to get to number one. It came in on the, it entered the Billboard charts at ninety nine. Yeah, just squeaked in there. Yeah, just squeaked in. <laughs> and can you imagine kind of like 99, 90, 98? So slowly, 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 it took twelve weeks. So that's what three months. Three months to hit the top ten. <laughs> unbelievable, unbelievable. So it was a song that kept growing, and I think. You know, what we don't have these days, because what you have now is chains of, of, of radio stations or franchises, and you don't have the independent stations. I know in Perth you guys do, but here in Toronto, you know, you we're getting the same music they get in Ottawa that they get in Vancouver. And if the programmer doesn't program it, tough luck. Back in the 70s, stations were independent and they were programming their own stations. So this song, you know, Will It Go Around in Circles, kind of became a hit in the West Coast, and, and literally slowly made its way to the East Coast. Um, the other weird thing about this single was that the association with the Beatles is that McCartney and Wings were number one with My Love, which was knocked out of number one by Harrison's Give Me Love, which was knocked out of number one by this song, um, Will It Go Around, Will it go around in Circles. So there you go, eh? Yeah, and, and uh, a lot of Beatles connections there. But you're absolutely right about the days in the 70s when something could be massive, you know, on the West Coast. or You don't, you don't see that anymore. And, and, of course, it is because of the corporatization of, of radio. But that's, that takes away the flavor because, I mean, like, you, you, you grew up, what, North Bay, right? Yeah. So you would have heard songs that may have been a hit in North Bay, that may not have been a hit in Toronto. And I, I, the one example I, I love is my wife would say to me, Women Around the World at Work by Martha and the Muffins was a massive hit, massive hit in Vancouver. It was not a big hit in Toronto, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, but we don't get that conversation anymore. If it's a hit in Toronto, it's a hit in Vancouver, it's a hit in New York, it's a hit in LA. Like it's, it's that regionalism that seems to be gone, which is a real, to me, it's a real shame. Yeah, I agree with you that it is a shame. Now, you picked the UK top five singles. So what was on that chart that week? Well, kind of interesting because one of them was very old, by 73. And that was Albatross by Fleetwood Mac, which came out actually in 69. And that was Fleetwood Mac before Lindsey Buckingham and, and Stevie Nicks. Um, brilliant song. Mm-hmm. Number four was David Bowie, Life on Mars. Again, it wasn't a new song in 73. It had been out. For a while, I don't know. The British do this, so they they chance upon a song and they go, "Oh, you know what? I forgot how good this was." Number three, Ten CC, Rubber Bullets. Now, here's a little tidbit: banned. It was banned during the the protests over George Floyd because of the rubber bullets. They thought they were making fun of protests. Oh my gosh, the song at that point, you know, forty years old. It wasn't making. Yeah, the the. Art of subtlety is lost on people these days, right? Like, a uh, very sad, I, I, very sad state of affairs. What's going on? I now. surrender. Yeah. Now, Tony, this this one number two, I couldn't even find in Spotify. It's Lee Phillips and Peters with a song called "Welcome Home." So I can't comment on it. I I, I know Lee Phillips, but I cannot find the song. Yeah. Number one. Now another one that makes you kind of <laughs> just saying the title makes me laugh. Yeah. Number one, squeeze. I'm oh, sorry, Slade with "Squeeze Me." please me <laughs> and the spelling is hilarious yeah. too right because they do it more yeah. phonetically 
I love Slade. They were funny. Yeah. So yeah, Billy Preston. Yeah, I know, but he's a he, he's he's a favorite of ours, right? Absolutely. And you know what? I'm going to segue into another favorite of ours because we're going to be going next to July 9th, 1962, and we're going to be talking about Bob Dylan and maybe just maybe his most iconic song. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. So we are in New York City. It's July 9th, 1962. And on the break, we just both remarked that we've been in New York City this entire road trip, except for, of course, the Memphis to Merseyside moment. But that doesn't happen very often. I still want my piece of uh, pizza. <laughs> well, we'll make a stop right after this segment. And, may, and maybe, maybe, maybe a giant pretzel on the street. Oh, there you go. So we <laughs> are talking about Bob Dylan and the recording at Columbia Studios in New York City of what might be his most iconic song, Blowing in the Wind. And where do you start with a song like this? Well, it's interesting. It was never a hit for Bob. No. I mean, it, it, he, he wrote it, and it's his song, but it was the hit, which made number two in the U.S. charts, was by uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary. I mean, they really introduced... I mean, at this point, Dylan was still a, an obscure folk singer at the time. Um. And a session musician, I mean, he played harmonica on a Harry Belafonte album, but he wasn't known. But I think just this song may have kicked down some doors for him, right? Oh, absolutely. Now, the other thing about this song is, because I don't know about you, but when I think of Blowing in the Wind, I automatically think protest movement, right? Civil rights movement. And yet Dylan says that he was pretty emphatic that he said it's not a protest song. And which is, but it's, it's permanently linked to the protest movement yeah yeah it is and and dylan dylan you know it's like that famous how do you describe yourself well, i'm a song and dance man yeah. um i think he says stuff sometimes to kind of just you kind of go pardon I, I did find it funny that during his first performance of the song he couldn't read his own handwriting and so he made some of the lyrics up as he went along <laughs> yeah that's man hilarious. after my own heart <laughs> Now, did the lyrics that he made up, did they end up making the final cut or not, you know? I don't know. And it's, it's interesting because originally there was only two verses and he later added the, I mean, he, it, it's, I'm just reading a book about Bob Dylan right now, Tony, and it's an interesting book because it talks about his writing and he does things very quickly. But even though he does things quickly, there's a lot of versions of a lot of the songs that we now know as, as what I call folk standards, right? Um a song like um, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, you know, was really a bunch of lines from different songs that didn't fit in anywhere. And he just actually put them together as a song. Yeah, that you know? sounds like a very John Lennon type thing to do, doesn't I it? I agree. I agree. So it's, it's um, I don't know. I think, I think that who knows what he's saying that night. And, and hey, Tony, have you, you've been to Greenwich Village, right? Um, I have, I, I've been through Greenwich Village on a bus. I've never actually been out walking oh, there. Cynthia has, but she loved it. I did too. I think it's it's one of my favorite places on earth to go to. And when we go to see Billy Joel at Madison Square, we got to go to to uh, catch a show somewhere in some some club in, um, in in Greenwich Village. Okay. Yeah, you'll get no argument from me. <laughs> now, do you think do you think that when Bob said this is not a protest song, was he being serious, or do you think that was just Bob Dylan being Bob Dylan? I think it was Bob Dylan not being comfortable with being 
the head of a protest movement. Blown in the Wind was used a lot in the early 60s, especially with Martin Luther King and a lot of the protests that were happening. And I don't think he ever, Dylan has never felt comfortable being what he would call him. He would never call himself a spokesman, but other people have, right? Yeah. So I think he downplays things because he's uncomfortable with that kind of, you know, notoriety, so to speak. I don't know if that's the right word, notoriety. I I think he was serious, but I think he was kind of doing it to get people off his back. Oh, okay. Yeah, because like I was saying earlier, I, I, I have a hard time separating blowing in the wind from the protest movement when I think about the historical importance of that song. Well, you, you see those old film footage of people arm in arm walking down Chicago or mm-hmm. and they're singing blowing in the wind. And Joan Baez certainly... Every time she popped up at some kind of protest, would would sing that song. Whereas John Lennon, when he wrote "Give Peace a Chance," he wanted it to be a protest song. He wanted it sung at every rally. He was very comfortable with that, which I think is the difference between a Dylan and a, and a Lennon. Uh, you know, Dylan, I think Dylan just wants to do what he does and just get on with it and not have that kind of um, people who go, "You're an icon" or or whatever. He, he doesn't see himself in that way. I don't. I'm not saying John Lennon did either, but. Some people are more comfortable with that than others, don't you think? Well, absolutely, and and you're right. John Lennon took on that uh, mantle of spearheading the peace movement, right? He was very comfortable doing that, and and he knew he would face criticism for that, but he he did it anyways. Yeah, and 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 Dylan just well, and Dylan would say that this was you know after '63 he never wrote anything political at all. I mean, and I don't agree at all because. You know, you listen to songs like Hurricane, or even on his most recent album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, there's a, a brilliant track called Murder Most Foul, which is about the assassination of Kennedy. But it's more than that. It's more about the assassination of America, you know? And it's a, it's a, it's a heavy track. But um, I just also want to tell people that Tony is doing a lovely thing for me. And, I, and Tony, I'm going to share this because I know you don't like kind of spotlight, but Bob Dylan has re-recorded a, a version of Blowing in the Wind which is um, only one pressing made. He re-recorded it, and it's going up for auction on July 7th. And, and it's supposed to go for about a million pounds, and Tony's buying me it. And I, Tony, thank you. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm taking my uh, reduced uh, pension <laughs> from, from retiring three years earlier, and I'll be just blowing it all. Uh, I've just, I wrote the pension board asking for an advance, so... <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, I would love to. A million pounds, Tony. Oh, my oh gosh. Oh, my gosh. You know what? If I could, I would, pal. You know no, that. I know, but it, it's this, I, what's this thing? It's called Ionic Original, a new analog format developed by T-Bone Burnett. And oh. it's a one-of-a-kind disc, and it's being auctioned off. And I, I just, I, you know, I, I joke with my wife all the time, going, hey, honey, just sign this piece of paper. It's just a mortgage. <laughs> That's right. The, the eighth mortgage on the house. Here in- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh! Oh, too funny, too funny, too funny. But anyway, so "Blown in the Wind" is an iconic song, and and um, you know what can you say about? It? I mean, you know, Dylan based the melody on. Um, it was uh, on an old slave song, right? Yeah, called "No More Auction Block." Great title. I have it by the Carter family on the Carter because Car- I love the Carter family. Full disclosure, but uh, yeah, do you, but let me ask you: Do you like the song? Oh, I love the song. Yeah, and, and again, I I always. I love the song for the song itself, and I also love the song for the historical significance. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. A thousand percent. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. So, 
I just saw Dylan last year, and he's still, still doing it, man. He's still, and I love Bob Dylan. I'm just, he's such a great man. Anyway, so that's Bobby. Yeah, well, I remember you texted me after that show and said how amazing it was. So yeah. Yeah, I was shocked. I was, I was, I was blown away by it. And um, you know, and actually, he he did two things he never does. He did an encore, and he talked to the audience. So that was kind of cool. Oh wow. <laughs> Now you've got a chart here with this is something new again, right? That you did the Billboard US top five mono albums, and that's that's kind of cool because a lot of albums were still being recorded in mono back in the early sixties. And you know, the mono albums were more what the I guess the common folk were buying because stereos were expensive, and stereo albums tended to be either high class jazz or high class or classical music. So the top five mono albums was the original cast a uh, number five original cast of West Side Story number four Henry Mancini's soundtrack to Breakfast at Tiffany's and Tony I put on um, on the Spotify playlist Audrey Hepburn singing Moon River which oh, never yeah. fails to bring a tear to my eye yeah that's uh, she's so great oh, just hello take my heart out and, yeah uh, well you know you remember uh, at our place we had that big audrey hepburn uh, poster right like the uh, i love yeah. that poster you, yeah. you're hanging it up again yeah oh yeah it's in the uh, dining room right now yep so yeah uh well i remember that's why i brought it up because i, I remember that audrey hepburn hepburn poster you have and a I, I i love her but b her version of moon river just it just kills you Mr. Acker Bilk. That's how it was named. It, was, it wasn't Acker Bilk. It was Mr. Yeah. Acker Bilk. <laughs> Do you know him? <laughs> oh, my, well, because he's a clarinet player. Stranger on the Shore. You would not believe, Aaron. Like, that was a <laughs> monster hit for Acker Bilk. Stranger on the Shore. And you would not believe how many times I have been asked over my career. Oh, do you know uh, that Acker Bilk song? Or do you know Stranger on the Shore? <laughs> Which I do. But um, it was It was huge. So it's an instrumental being played on the clarinet with an orchestra, and it was on the Billboard U.S. Top Five Mono album. So that's pretty cool. Were you never tempted to kind of go Acker Bill? No, I'm not. No, <laughs> don't. Stranger on what? No, no, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, number two, the movie soundtrack to West Side Story. Apparently, West Side Story was really popular in 1960. What year is this? 63? Yeah. Well, 62. you know what? It is a good score. I got to say it. Leonard Bernstein uh, wrote it and tough, tough score to play. My goodness. But uh, it is a good I, I'm going to ask score. this question because I love your reaction. Have you seen the new movie, Tony? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask. And number one is an album that I happen to know on good, good uh, information that you really like. Number one, Ray Charles. Modern sounds of country and Western music. Yeah, we talked about that a few episodes yeah. ago, didn't we? And and uh, yeah, that that album is just that that should never have been uh, as successful as it was. If you look at the pieces individually, but uh, but boy, uh, Ray Charles redefined uh, what what it means to be a country and Western song in uh, on that album, didn't he? Yeah, he redefined a lot of things on that album. And we talked about the fact that he had to have some pretty, he, he had to be pretty brave to walk into Atlantic Records and go, hey, guys. <laughs> yeah, that, what do they call that? Testicular fortitude or whatever? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He sure had it. <laughs> I love it. It's like, hey, you know, I'm thinking. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking that it's uh, almost time for our 
Memphis to Merseyside moment, and we have talked about this one in the past, but it's so we Im- have. it's so important that I think it's worth a second look. And I'll bet you, I'm guessing right now, this time next year, we'll be doing a third look at it. Uh, so I hope so. Yeah, yeah, sure. we'll be right back with one of the most important singular moments in rock and roll history for our Memphis to Merseyside moment. See you soon. So, Tony, on July uh, 6th, 1957, uh, a young man named John Lennon and his band Quarrymen were playing at the Walton Church Parish Fete, and a guy named Ivan Vaughn invited a guy named Paul McCartney to come and check out his friend's band. Yep, John Lennon and Paul McCartney met on July the 6th, 1957, at this Walton Church Parish. The Quarrymen were setting up um, so they did an afternoon performance on the back of a truck, famous photograph of John Lennon, a checkered shirt, mm-hmm. strumming away. And McCartney met, met up with him inside later on. They're doing an indoor performance. And McCartney played 20 Flight Rock, which is a great song. Yeah. Beat Bob But he played it upside down because he's left-handed. And the guy, the, there was no left-handed guitarist. So McCartney just played it upside down, believe it or not. Lennon was impressed, and, and I, I love the comment that John Lennon made once. He said, you know, I didn't know whether to invite this guy into the band because I, he was almost better than me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and also didn't Paul also showed him how to tune the guitar properly, didn't he? Yeah. And and as you, yes, he did. And it showed John, hey, you want to learn how to, because John, I think, was tuning it like a banjo, to be honest, because his mom taught him. But the other funny story is that Lennon was notorious for getting words wrong in songs. And you can hear that in live recordings in the 70s. And Lennon was doing a song called Come Go With Me. You know, pretty darling, come and go with me. And Lennon thought the words were come go with me down to the penitentiary. (laughs) (laughs) And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Let me tell you the right words. (laughs) I just love that story. And, and, you know, Tony, uh, I'm going to be in Liverpool Good Lord willing at the Creekstone Rise in August, and I booked a tour. Oh. And on that tour, we get to go to this church ground, which is still there, hasn't changed. Oh, that's going to so, be amazing. But you know, this moment, right? You can just visualize it. Like I like to think, you know, that the clouds parted, right, and the and the music gods were were smiling, and and there it was, right? This this meeting, this chance meeting, that yeah. changed everything. I mean, it changed the world. Absolutely. It's just, it's just the the domino effect. Somehow everything was put together in this one. And you keep thinking to yourself, what if McCartney said to Ivan, no, I'm kind of tired today. Yeah. I'm going to hang out with my dad and my brother. But he went. And, um, you know, and it took, it wasn't overnight. It was not an overnight success for Paul and John and the Quarrymen. It was from 57. They didn't have any success until 63. But, hey, man. Where Paul McCartney, just so you, just just as a funny story, that he wrote a song with Quarryman, with George at the time of the Quarryman called "In Spite of All the Danger," which I put on the Spotify playlist, and um, the Quarryman recorded a version of it for just themselves. He did it in, in New York City. Oh, he wow. did. He did. <laughs> Linda said it was amazing. He just got a guitar. He, I'm going to play the first song I ever wrote. He did "In Spite of All the Danger." Oh, that's very very cool. Yeah. So. Even Paul knows how important that day was. You know oh, what I mean? Monumental. Like monumental day. So thank goodness for July 6th, you know, and uh, uh, 1957 that this happened. And 
All I can say is I think you're right. It's like everything aligned. Yeah. You know? Everything was just perfect. Same and as he, same as Elvis Presley in Memphis, right? Oh, exactly. And you know what, Aaron? I have to say, uh, because we're you know looking at each other from through uh, a Zoom-like application here, but this I think has been maybe my favorite road trip so far. This has been so fun to record today. I, I yeah, it felt good to me too. It's not funny you say that. It was it was just really enjoying it. Some good laughs, good information, and just yeah, I have to agree with you. And you're driving. Wow, you've really improved. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so you know what, folks. Uh, we just want to take a moment to thank you for being such great listeners as we always do and you allow us into your headphones every week continue uh, sharing the show sharing posts on social media and we always value your feedback i'd like to thank rick denis as always for providing the music but aaron you know what let's uh, let's sign off here so when you feel like the man is getting you down you gotta keep on rocking because that's basically it See you next time, folks.